Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, if you'd like to follow along in your Bible. I hope to come to you soon, but I, I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of God's godliness. Well, good morning to you all. This is the first time I've uh, got a chance to speak to you. So uh, again, I want to just introduce myself. My name is James. If this is your first time uh, getting to know it, I'm just going to hand this off so that uh, you don't have to work with one hand here. So uh, I want you to turn with you. And if you need a Bible this morning, if you don't, uh, just put up your hand real briefly. Our Frontline team will get you that. And if you're just sort of catching up and you're getting uh, sort of acclimated where you are in First Timothy chapter 3, we're going through this book 14 to 16 this morning. And so if you need that Bible, just put up your hand real briefly and our team will get you one. So brief inter- introduction to, mis- to myself. Uh, I am married to an awesome woman named Karen. It's been 15 years. I know I look incredibly young. And uh, how could this, man- this happen? So, uh, and I have three children, uh, Chloe, Liam, and Laurel, or Lolo, as she named herself uh, very early on, and she couldn't say her name. I've been pastoring for about 15 years now, all in uh, church planting environments, which really just means that I've been setting up chairs for 15 years, except for uh, maybe a couple years of hiatus in there. And I'm just really looking forward to opening the Bible with you this morning. So let's, uh, this morning we're going to talk about a few uh, questions. We're going to talk about really important questions about the church and our role in this city. So thinking about the church can get really confusing at times. Like I was asking my kids, if you think about the word church, uh, my kids will say sometimes uh, that uh, I've heard them call a school, because that's where we've been, the, the church, because we're, we're going to the church this, this week. Or they've even talked about the gathering, the Sunday gathering, they said, oh, we're going on Sunday, we're going to church, the Sunday service. And now they've got a new church. They've been saying, oh, I'm going to meet my new friends at the, at the church. And so it's a group of people. So they're talking about this word church in three different ways. And that's a seven to nine-year-old perspective. But I'm telling you right now, we can get equally confused at times as we talk about this word because it has so many different aspects uh, to it. And if, we, if they struggle, we struggle. And in today's passage, and the one that we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna step into, First uh, Peter uh, as well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is primarily concerned with answering this question, who is the church and what is the church's role in the city? That's what he wants them to know. He wants us to know. And so as we begin, take a moment with me and think about the question, this question, what have you known, what do you think about when you hear the word church? And does your definition, is it, does it agree with Scripture? Think about that question as we begin. Because in our Timothy text this morning, uh, we are introduced to three pictures. I want you to see these pictures with me. Uh, three pictures of the, who the church is and what it's going to do. And so the Apostle Paul starts off and he gives us this first picture. And he says, I want you to know how you ought to behave in the household of God. That's the first picture. And so this is a, this is a picture of family. Of the, it's, a, it's an idea of home. 
And so you know what this means? It means in our identity that we are family, brothers and sisters with, uh, in Christ, and uh, we have an elder brother who is Jesus, and we have a father. And so this household, that's how we're made up of. We're the, we're the house and the household of God. That's the first one. And so very sad. And the second thing, he, he doesn't spend a lot of time building that out, but he, he, he introduces the second picture. It says this, it's the church of the living God. Or literally, this is the living God's church. We often think about the church as being the building, right? We see church buildings all over the place. But the word here is describing a group of people who are distinct we are distinct people and yet are unified in some weird and miraculous way through Christ. We're unified by the living God. And this is like temple imagery here. This is the idea of the temple uh, and what, what, what Paul's got in mind. And then there's this, uh, this third thing here, the third picture. And it's a, it says it's a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this may be a little more unfamiliar to us, but this would have been a powerful image, one that Timothy would have recognized because, as uh, Matt talked about last, uh, last week, that the temple of Diana was sitting there right in the city of Ephesus. And this temple was absolutely, you couldn't miss it, 100 pillars, 18 meters high, each of those pillars. And they held a gigantic marble roof, and that, that temple was the center of the, of the city. And it, as well as these pillars supporting the roof, the pillars served to hold high this, it, this image that could have been seen from miles away. And while Paul is not endorsing the kind of worship that's going on in this temple, or he's comparing the, the objectives with the purposes of God, he is using this building to illustrate a point that the temple was a witness to the city. It was a witness for those who were there that, that they could not miss it. John Stodd, he says these words, he says, just as those pillars held up that massive roof so that the, the church holds, so that the church holds the truth aloft, so that it is seen and admired by the world, the church's function is to display the truth. And so beneath these pillars lies a buttress, and it's really just a, it's a wall. It's a, a wall that, that protects the building. And so when all these parts are put together, we get this, this idea, this, it's evident that, that the church exists to guard the truth by proclaiming it. And so these are the three pictures, and this picture of truth is so important for us this morning. Because it, Paul continues on, he roots this exhortation on behavior. He's talking about, I want you to know these things that we've been talking about, and I want you to know how you're supposed to behave. But then he roots it in this idea. He wants us to look to the life of Jesus. It's not just about living the, the moral life. He wants us to, keep, to set our eyes on Jesus. And I want you to look with me at verse 16. Because it says this, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh. He's vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. I want you to think about godliness for a second with me. Would you, would you think about this word? Because it's one that we kind of lost. Because when you, what do you think of when you hear this word godliness? Because the answers, when I asked a few people this week and I, as I was reading about it, most of the time it comes back to behavior. We end up, we always have some expression of an idea of Christian character that, that using expressions like God-like or Christ-like or fruit of the Spirit. And godliness, it certainly includes godly character. You can't, you can't exclude it, but there is more to it than this. That there's, an, there's another thing, that a fundamental aspect of, God's, of godliness that is more than even godly character. And it's the foundation, in fact, on which godly character is built. Because the New Testament, when it talks about this word godliness, it, it's talking about, it conveys an idea of devotion. A personal attitude towards God that results in actions. It's a devotion that is pleasing to Him. And this is so key for us. It is always devotion in action. It's not just the warm feelings, although it is right for us to connect emotionally with the Spirit of God when we sing songs in the morning. But that is not devotion. That is an experience. Okay? Neither is devotion to God merely a time that you would spend alone with Him each and every day or each and every week, however you do it, where you do private Bible reading or prayer, a practice which we often call what? Devotions, right? But it's not even this alone. These practices are so important for us. They're vital for us to, to grow in godliness. But we got to think about it as more in the sense of it's not defining devotion for us. Because devotion is, is not just an activity, it's an attitude towards God. And I think of it this way, three ways that I, I think it is essential when you think about devotion. First of all, it's about the fear of God. Do you know that it's utterly and absolutely right for us to fear God and have an awe for His holiness? And so in our devotions, we don't take, in our devotion, we don't take God for granted. He is not one to be trifled with. In our devotion, we are to, to have a love for Him because of who He is and, and because of what He's done and the work He's done. We have love for God. And devotion also includes a desire for God, a pursuit. We want to know Him want to know him more. And I want you to notice all these elements. Who do they focus on? Not you, not me. They focus on God. And so the practice of godliness is an exercise of discipline where we focus on God. And so from this Godward attitude arises the character. It, arri- it makes the actions come out of it. And so that's what we're supposed to think of when we hear this word godliness this morning. 
And so Paul is talking about here saying that there is a mystery in godliness. And you know what the mystery is? It's not that it's about action. It's that it's embodied in Jesus Christ. You and I cannot know perfect godliness this side of heaven. You can grow in it, but you will not experience perfect godliness in your life. But you can see it every time you open the pages of Scripture and you open Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You come face to face with godliness in the life of Christ. And this is the, the mystery of godliness, how the Spirit of God would actually take your eyes and my eyes, which are incredibly self-centered at times, and turn your eyes to Jesus, the risen and ascended Christ. And He fills you and He empowers you to live in such a way that is not natural for you. That you would live in such a way that you would confess Christ, you would live rightly and share the gospel to those around you. And so as we surrender to the gospel in our lives, in living it out, this is the practice, this is the mystery. We begin to understand what godliness looks like in our lives. And we keep our eyes on Christ. And so this is the big idea of this passage. I'll, give you, I'll keep going a little bit, but you've got you to get the big idea, okay? So uh, Paul wants Timothy first off. It's not always about you and I. Paul wants Timothy to know this. Your actions, he wants to know about their behavior, and he wants them to know about what his beliefs are. And your actions and your beliefs matter because you are the church. Timothy, you are the church. Your actions and your beliefs matter. And the church's godliness matters. Do you know why it matters? Because we are the witness of Christ to the world. And so our godliness matters. David Watson wrote this, and I want to read it to you this morning, because I think it's a really key quote for us to, to think about. It says this, It is the church that is willing to die to worldly standards that will know the power of Christ's resurrection. It may be envied for the depths of loving relationships. People might want the kind of relationships that they see at times. And it may be envy for that. Or for spontaneous joy. And it also might be hated and persecuted for its revolutionary lifestyle, exposing the hollow values and the selfishness of the society around it. That it seeks to serve. But it cannot be ignored. When God reigns among his people, they become a city on a hill. And it cannot be hid. And so... The, God, the Lord wants us to catch a vision of what the church is this morning. He wants us to see that, we're, that, uh, that it's important for us how we live in, its role, in our role in the city and how we display the risen, ascended Christ to our city. And it drives us to this question. If you know who, what you are, how are we supposed to live in Guelph? How are we supposed to live in our city? Because that is what, uh, that's what Paul is talking about to Timothy in his city. 
What is the relationship that Church of the City is supposed to have in the city of Guelph? And to answer this question, I want you to turn over with me. Because there's a complimentary passage. I think it's really important for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. So if you want to flip over there this morning with me. And we're going to start at verse 4. I'm going to let you get there. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4. And we're going to read till verse 12 together. So Peter writes this. He says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men and in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so the honor is for, so the honor is for, those, for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, have not, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, foreigners, aliens, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war on your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when, you speak, when they speak against you, so that when they speak against you, as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, friends, Peter, like Paul, he wants us to know what the church is and how, again, we're in this, and how we're supposed to live. And it's a, he talks about this remarkable tension, okay? A tension that we are to live in this world with. And I can't fully flesh out, again, what the church is. There's just too much there. But I want you to see this, and it's important for us to know this and look at this, starting in verse 5. It says that you yourselves are living stones. And it's a, it's a plural. It's not you alone. You yourselves, plural, all Christians are being formed together as living stones in building this spiritual house, which is the church. And a spiritual house is, is really the temple of the Holy Spirit in which the glory of God, Shekinah glory, the, the, where God comes down in this earth and how he dwells. And he says, I come down and my glory is found in the church in this living, breathing place where God breathes and dwells. And the church, get this, the church is living not because of great music, of great friends, of good preaching. It's living because the Spirit of God is here. 
It's the living church because of the Spirit of God. And so as we read down here, we see that God, our master builder, he's laying stones out to form the walls of the church. And you know that this is, this is uh, the normal pattern of how he talks about uh, living stones or this imagery of the church. Because really there's only one place in Scripture, I think 1 Corinthians 6.19, where it speaks of you individually as the temple of God. Most of the other uh, pictures here are all t- always talking about a community, a collective idea, that you are with others, that you are stones being built into a wall, the walls of the house, and that you are being built. And this is like progressive, it's like you're, it's happening present tense. It's not like it happened at one point in time and it stopped, that you are being built right now. That's what God's doing in your life. And this is so important because we got to recognize this, that we have some fierce Western eyes as we read our text this morning. We love our individualism. We love the world that we, we are in control of. And so Christianity is not talked about in some monastic experience way. But it's actually talked about in a communal experience. It may be helpful for you to, to, to look at it in this way. If you were to think about uh, yourself as a brick in the wall, that there are bricks or stones in that wall that are on top of you. And if that brick or stone shakes, it shakes those around them. If that brick or stone is removed, the wall is weakened. And think, you think of yourself that there are stones underneath you that you are a part of. And again, if the stone shakes, you shake others. If the stone is removed, you're, you're not just living for yourself. You shake other people. And that's how God designed it. In our Western Christianity, we're thinking about our personal experience. I go to church. I do Bible study. I do my devotions. That's what's important. But you know what it's saying here? It's painting a picture that demands for this question to be asked this morning. It says, are you so built into a body of believers that if you stopped coming to reunion, or you stopped being a part of your your missional community, that things would be dramatically weakened in other people's lives, and that people's faith journeys would be affected by you. Are you so built into other people's lives in this way? Because this picture of interconnectedness is so countercultural. We are built, we are made to share our decisions, to share these things with others. Your hardships, your joys, your time, your money, all these things are on the table when you join the church. All these things, you are a part of this. And it is you who are built into this interconnectedness. 
And this is how actually God inhabits his people. How he displays his glory. And so I say to you this morning, it's not that you can't disengage from the church, but you're missing God's glory for your life by not being a part of his community. And this is how God powerfully works. It's not just through devotions or quiet times. And as we read on, we we have to keep going. As we see Peter, he moves us from where we are, who we are, to who Jesus is again. Jesus is described in this metaphor as the chief cornerstone. The first stone. the, the, The stone that all the other stones are attached to. If you're, build, if you're building a wall, a builder starts with the, the stone that they're going to they're gonna pick. And you know what that stone is? It's the best stone. It's true. It has no cracks in it. It's straight. Because if you get a, 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 like a crooked cornerstone, you get a crooked wall. And crooked foundations don't work so well. If anyone's done renovations on their house, they know this. The cornerstone is so key. Jesus is the perfect stone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Jesus, Peter says, is precious to some of you. But not everyone. He's precious to you here. But that same stone is a stumbling block to others. And what, what's being said here in verse 8 is that when the church speaks out the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that this is good news for some, and it's offensive to others. And that's what this church believes. Church of the City, we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. We believe this unapologetically. And how... Are we, the church, supposed to act towards those who are finding Jesus to be a stumbling block, who find Jesus offensive, find how, who are struggling around us? Should we attack them? Should we retreat from them? Should we get into our own bubble and live our own way? You know what? Our relationship with our neighbors is talked about here in this passage. It says this in verse 11. Behold, I urge you as sojourners. It's not a sort of a strange word. Foreigners. Aliens. Not outer space aliens. Aliens who are, who are not a part of, not in this land. I urge you as exiles to abstain from the passions do not follow in the ways that everyone else is craving, the, the happiness that everyone else is seeking. It's, don't live in that way. But then it says, keep your conduct amongst the generals, Gentiles honorable so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, there's two ends of the spectrum on which the church can live. They're the extremes, and then there's all the, middle, all the ways in the middle, okay? But here's the, here's the two ends of the extreme. One end is to embrace God's love 
as, the great, as God's greatest virtue. That social justice alone is what the church is all about. And invite anyone to believe whatever they want about God or morality. And the desire for acceptance overwhelms any kind of stance on truth. We see this in our culture in churches. Uh, it's not like it's a secret. We talk about it, the churches that, that go in instruction, they're called liberal. And that's the far end of the spectrum. But there's another side. There's a scary side. <laughs> and that's the other side is that, uh, that when we are, live, we can live in an antagonistic way. And a retreating approach where we pull back into a bubble, a protectionist approach. We post things about how bad the culture is around us on Facebook. We, we don't attend anything unless it's a program of the church. I only hang out with brothers and sisters in Christ. And we talk about that in, and uh, the far end of the spectrum is fundamentalism. Or more kindly, maybe conservative. I don't think these terms are super helpful, but I want you to, I want you to understand this. Because it's important for us to understand this. I was reading Tim Keller this week. And we made this, he made this point about the strangeness of Christianity in that first century culture. The Christians, the, the people of the way, they were known for radical obsession with caring for other people, caring for each other, communal living, care for the poor, the outsider, love for the orphan and the widow. Well, that sounds positively liberal for us this morning. But they were also known for this strange obsession to a single deity. They only worshipped one God. Can you believe it? For their commitment to Scripture as an absolute authority in their lives. And for radical views on sex. For the, that there was only in the covenant of marriage between man and a woman. Well, that sounds positively conservative, doesn't it, to us this morning? And it's so strange because to live gospel-centered lives, you will do things and believe things that will both intrigue and cause people to stumble. You know that? You can't help it. Because Christianity is neither liberal, nor is it conservative, but it's unique. You're not called to, you're called neither to assimilate into culture so that your worldview causes no offense to people, nor are you supposed to be an enemy of culture, that you would hold back, you would, that you wouldn't have a relationship with anyone who doesn't believe the same thing that you believe. And you know what those beliefs do? Both extremes avoid suffering. Because if your life looks like everyone else around you, you're not going to suffer. You're just going to fit in. But if you pull back from everyone around you, this avoids suffering too. Because you only are with people who agree with what you do and believe. And so you never face what God, what God is talking about here. 
But we as Church of the City are called into a hard, hard tension to live in the world, but not to assimilate into it. We are called to radically love our city. Radically love our city. To love it in tangible ways with people who have messy lives just like us. We just scrub up sometimes a little nicer. Who don't always agree with what it, that we think is right, but to be crazy generous to, in serving those around us. But our beliefs and our actions will cause us to be accused of intolerance at times, of bigotry, of narrow-mindedness. And this is what Peter says. Why do you hear this? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and they glorify God on the day of visitation. To live, if you live in this tension, you're going to be vilified at times. People are going to say false things about you. You may suffer in small or big ways in your workplaces. You might lose in, uh, friendships in this situation too. But here's what happens. People are intrigued by gospel, the gospel. And they will eventually be saved. Not because of you and I. Because, but that's because how God, this is how God works. He intrigues people with the, with the lives around them. And this is what we're called to do in Guelph. To live lives that would stand out. To suffer temporary shame for the gospel. And in doing so, we invite fellow sinners to join us on this journey. To go with us. And this tension seems overwhelmingly difficult to maintain. Why would you do it? Why? It's hard. Especially if I'm going to suffer. And Peter gives us that answer in verse 21. He says this, for, to you, for this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to, to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like a sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To follow this tension. Why do you do it? It's because this is what it means to follow Jesus. There's no, there's no middle ground. The gospel tells us that Jesus suffered so that you would experience reconciliation with the Father. That's not enough of a reason. Here's another one. He experienced painful suffering so that we could be healed. That's not enough of a reason. He left paradise to find you. He came for you. That amazes me. And he loved me. And he loved you. His sheep. His lost sheep. And now he calls you to live in his example. To live in his way. 
that you would live in this strange way that you'd be accused at times, but be so intriguing that people will ask, what's the difference? And if we're actually engaged in real relationship with them, if we love them, we have an answer. And the difference is Jesus. And this is the greatest news in the entire world, that the church is going to prevail. I know this because it's not dependent on me. Because this passage talks about a cornerstone, a true cornerstone. And the church is built on Jesus. It's never going to collapse fully because of Jesus. He was chosen for the task that only he could complete. And he's the right fit. And this is what God does. That we might suffer in this, but God would bring glory to himself by saving people. And this is, what, this is the relationship that, that Church of the City is supposed to have with Guelph. It's amazing. It's scary. It's the best thing in the world. But we have the Spirit to empower us. We're not doing this alone. So would you stand with me? And we're going to say this together as we close. Because we, we started with First Timothy. There's a confession. We don't root our behavior in saying we got to do this. We root it in who Christ is. And so we say this with me. Jesus, sorry, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels. Jesus proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. We're going to sing. And if you need prayer this morning for anything, maybe you've been struggling in your life, there's a spot right over here. We have a team that will pray with you. And we're going to sing now. We're going to respond. And so you can just come up and pray. Receive the things we do. But let's worship and respond to our amazing, amazing Jesus this morning.